You're listening to a Rock Candy podcast. What exactly makes Beyonce the Queen Bee? How do we feel about Ariana Grande's use of rap vernacular? And most importantly, what's better, chamomile or spiced chai? We ponder all of this and more on Hot Tea Hot Takes, now a part of the Rock Candy Podcast Network. Our show is just two friends drinking tea and discussing music, culture, politics, and anything else that comes to mind. We cover everything from Mozart to Megan Thee Stallion. New uploads are posted weekly. Look for it wherever you get your podcast. We'll see you soon. Bye. This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the discipline of asking questions. My name is Stephen Bradford Long, and we are here on the Rock Candy Podcast Network. For more shows like this one, go to rockcandyrecordings.com. All right. Well, I have an incredibly interesting guest for this episode, Helen Pluckrose. But before we get to that conversation, I have to thank my patrons. My patrons are my personal lords and saviors. They provide a steady supply of money to enable my crippling content creation addiction, and they keep me off the streets. So for this week, I have to thank Sam, Megan, Ash, Mania, and Isabel. Thank you so much. I truly could not do this show without you. Every single little bit helps. This show is an enormous amount of work from booking guests to interviewing to editing and producing and marketing. All of that stuff takes an enormous amount of time, but I do it because I believe in bringing long-form conversations among different interesting people to the public. I think that that is an invaluable thing right now. I'm delighted to bring these conversations to you for free, but I need a bit of help to do that. And that's what my patrons are for. My patrons also get extra content every single week. My House of Heretics podcast with the minister-turned-heretic from the Salvation Army, Timothy McPherson. And we talk about everything from politics to fisting and uh, just whatever's going on in the world. And if that interests you, then please become a patron. You also get early access to some of my articles, and you get unique access to me as a creator. All right. Well, with all of that finally out of the way, I'm delighted to welcome to the show Helen Pluckrose. Thank you for having me, Stephen. I am taking a risk having you on the show uh, because you are very controversial, and especially in my spaces, in leftist spaces. I read your book that you co-authored with James Lindsay last year called Cynical Theories. I read it at a point in my life when I was becoming very disillusioned with a lot of my political spaces. I read a bunch of books in that genre, like I read The Madness of Crowds by Douglas Murray. I read a bunch of, of books that are criticizing our, our current liberal moment. And I would say that your book is the one that challenged me the most. Your book is the one that gave me pause and challenged me the most. And I've been wanting to talk to you ever since because reading your book was a catalyst for me. And that doesn't mean that I agree with everything in it. That doesn't mean that that I uh, you know, agree with every part of that book and that criticism. But 
it was an incredibly challenging read, and I love books that challenge me. And so I've been wanting to talk to you ever since. And so in your own words, tell us some about who you are and what you do. Oh, well, I started um, at my, my studies, my academic background is in late medieval and early modern women's religious writing. And I look at the ways in which women um, used um, the narratives of Christianity to um, navigate um, sort of patriarchal systems. And then I was a part of the new atheist um, space where I was I was very critical of religion using my studies of religion in order to do this and then I became more and more concerned um, that my feminism was becoming um, invaded by cultural relativism by inconsistently applied principles that um, we weren't supporting um, people you know liberals atheists um, the women LGBT people consistently because of this standpoint epistemology, which you'll know if I've read my book, but I can explain if any of your readers need to know. So at the same time, I was doing my studies into um, women's writing and women's social issues. And I was um, being a, a liberal feminist. I was finding the postmodern theories in my studies were preventing me from doing rigorous scholarship. And the derivations of them, the critical theories that um, that have memed into um, activism within the sort of um, critical social justice, as I would call it, space of um, drawing on queer theory, critical race theory, post-colonial theory, and other um, studies was getting in the way of me actually sort of, uh, of, of us actually sort of promoting properly progressive policies so I um yeah I I did um people kept telling me I didn't understand the theories so I joined um with in with a project to send some truly terrible theoretical papers to journals um to see if they would publish them and they they did including one that nobody talks about because it isn't really very funny it's um, the one that Hypatia accepted, um, the feminist journal, which argued that there isn't any legitimate way to criticise critical social justice ideas and that people who try to should be punished. So this is the so-called squared hoax that made headlines like, was this in 2016, 2015? Um, 18. I 2018, 18. okay. Yeah, so this was the project that you did with uh, James Lindsay and Peter Bogosian. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So we um, we we argued, um, you know, ridiculous things. So, for example, that the paper that people remember most well and that that um, got an award for exemplary scholarship, it claimed to have um, examined a um, hundred thousand, I think it was, dog genitals in Oregon, Portland, Oregon. Um, and then um, examined a, in incidents of dog humping, questioned the owners about their sexuality, applied black feminist criminology to it for absolutely no reason whatsoever, and then thrown all our data away and made an argument that men need to be trained like dogs. And this was, <laughs> um, yeah, this was apparently... So, you know, after I published that, a feminist geographer who also published in there got in touch with me and said she was quite 
concerned about you know the quality of some of the stuff that's coming out there and it, it was getting in the way of serious work i don't mean to interrupt a feminist geographer what is that but somebody who looks at um, geographical issues from a feminist perspective. Okay. So I may forget what her thing was. I think, although I may be confusing her with someone else, that what she studied was the distribution of medical resources to women in rural communities in South Asia. Okay. Perfect. So that's rigorous scholarship. And Absolutely. she didn't want her scholarship next to, um, you know, people claiming that if you look at enough dog genitals, you can justify electrocuting men. You know, that's not what um, we should be doing. So oh, we did God. that. And then that, that caused a lot of hostility. And then cynical theories was an attempt to explain the the theories that 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 because our our papers weren't hoaxes we we say we keep saying this over and over again it, that we, they're a kind of ethnography we brought together a lot of the worst ideas we could find we decided which conclusion we wanted to reach then we used whatever theories we could to make those conclusions work we did each paper in two weeks and we got them published and that we think is a cause for concern if you actually do care about social justice. So then cynical theories was breaking down the problems that we see in this particular approach to this critical approach, which draws on, on certain very specific theories that um, often begin with critical, like critical pedagogy, critical race theory, uh, critical approaches to ableism, and of course has its origins in the critical consciousness and um, of, of the Frankfurt School, but but much more influenced from the, I would argue, from the um, the postmodernists, even though they wouldn't actually like what we're seeing right now. So um, so I don't want to lose people, but that that was what that was about. Then um, I formed Cowsweight because. After the murder of George Floyd and the um, Black Lives Matter protests, a lot of um, employers started um, having um, really policy changes and training programs. And people, for the first time, this started to hit blue collar and white collar workers who hadn't experienced this before. And they were being asked, you know, if they were white, they were being asked to affirm that they were racist. If they were black, they were being asked to testify to a particular experience of racism and claim to have a particular view on racism. We had um, yeah, uh, trans people being expected to embrace all kinds of ideas of um, coming from queer theory, do you know how many trans people have actually read queer theory and have any interest in it? Very few. It's it's almost mm -hmm. incomprehensible. So we're getting all of this um, coming at us. And then there is also, of course, um, the people who, who don't believe in, the, in um, gender at all. And they are being asked to um, claim, pretend to have a gender identity. So all of these people, suddenly hundreds of emails um, were coming to me. Thousands were going to some of my friends. And so we started pouring them into a Discord server and setting up resources and organising things. And Counterweight grew out of that. So people come to us when they are 
um, having some kind of imposition when they're being forced to pretend to believe something they don't believe. And we help them to negotiate. We work behind the scenes so they can sort things out internally, negotiate to keep their place of employment, sometimes university, sometimes school, um, open to a wider variety of viewpoints from which one can oppose racism, sexism and homophobia. So if you look on our website, you will see that we don't, we're liberal humanists. We don't expect all of our clients to identify as liberal humanists, but we do expect them to recognise the equal value and worth of everybody, whatever their race, gender, sex, sexuality, ability is. Um, and as, as long as they, they do that, we will, you know, as long as they're not seeking to you know be illiberal themselves we will support them to hold to to uh, to have their own minds and their own beliefs to summarize i think what i'm <laughs> hearing you say is that you are an advocate for true plurality and yeah i yeah go on I, I define liberalism and i i need to probably clarify this because i'm i'm i know i'm i'm probably speaking to a mostly american audience so in america Correct, yeah. people often think liberalism is leftism. In the UK, liberalism is often seen as centrism, and in Australia, it's understood as conservatism. So I'm not talking about any of that. When I'm talking about liberalism, I'm talking about the focus on the individual who shouldn't be constrained by any aspect of um, their identity or anything else, should have access to everything. So universality, individuality, universality, everybody has the same rules applied to them and plurality so people can believe different things they can have different identities and no one set of ideas or identity can be allowed to squash out any other individuality plurality universality that is what i'm talking about when i i talk about liberalism and actually your book was really helpful for me in understanding this is the realization that that is what my progressivism is based in is a sense of universal humanity. And, you know, just looking through history, I really believe that the most successful human rights campaigns for gay people, for black people, for any minority, for women, is based on the premise of universal humanity. It's like saying, I am just like you in the most fundamental sense. Please mm -hmm. treat me as such. I think Jonathan Wright. Yes, go on. Sorry, I, I interrupt you, but I, I, you might. Uh, some of your your listeners might like my essay. Um, Identity politics does not continue the rights of the, the work of the civil rights movement because it, it makes that argument. So I think so. So we definitely agree on those foundational principles. I mm. am a firm believer in free speech and a firm believer in universal humanity. And I think that that is the best way forward. And I say that as someone who embraces my gay identity, right? But, but to me, my gay identity is built upon the bedrock of universal humanity. And the fact that we have different tribes, uh, different identities, that to me is all just secondary that's just the icing on that universal human bedrock cake of mm -hmm. uh, of universal human universal humanity and and equal rights so well, let's look at that one um hom homosexuality um, yes. for example so if the, the liberal approach to lgbt rights is essentially some people are gay get over it 
That's really yes. very simple. Yes, exactly. So, and, um, you know, that's a reforming impulse. So what um, liberals wanted to do, they didn't want to overturn the whole sort of um, structure of society. They wanted, firstly, to decriminalise homosexuality and then to open up marriage to same-sex couples. So this is making a liberal society more accessible to more people. Yes. Now, if you go for the queer theory um, on the... Um, um, the critical social justice approach, then you discover that homosexuality is a political identity. Do you remember um, Pete, but- uh, I'm going to try and pronounce his name, Buttigieg? Buttigieg. Right, okay, thank you. Um, <laughs> being told he, he wasn't properly gay because he didn't have the right views. So this yeah. is a problem because that get, being gay isn't a political identity. There are gay conservatives. I, I wish there weren't, although it's a sign of progress that there can be. Um, but there are, you know, people who fall under the LGBT umbrella are ideologically diverse and they should not be constrained um, in any way, either by being disapproved of, um, as we see in socially conservative circles, or by being told they must have a certain political identity. If you are attracted to men, I don't, I assume you said gay, so I assume you are, then this is an attraction. Yes, I love Dick. That I uh, love, Okay. I- um, I have to warn you, I'm British, so I will tut if you. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, I'm so sorry. I will. I'll edit that out. I'm joking. I'm actually fine with this, but I, okay. I have a tendency to. But well, yeah, no, well, this, so... this show will probably have a broader audience outside of the queer, degenerate, gay, satanic world. So I will try to be on better behavior. <laughs> no, that's fine. I, I just like to pretend to be this um, prim and proper um, English lady who who talks at people, and I'm very glad that the internet didn't exist when I was in my 20s. Anyway, um, yeah. so... <laughs> But yeah, so so we have this approach where, um, you know, sexuality is a political identity and it isn't, you know, you you are attracted to and you fall in love with who you you fall in love with. And then there's pressure. They then get a moralistic pressure. Well, if you are gay, then you have a moral responsibility to support these certain kind of politics or to have certain ideas on what gender is, if it exists, how it works. And no, you you don't. You're an, you're, you remain an individual um, who happens to be attracted to people of the same sex or gender or both or whatever. You know, What you're saying, and I I do want to eventually get to the meat of your criticism of critical race theory and and critical queer theory and so on, but what you're saying reminds me of something that drives me absolutely nuts every single June during Gay Pride Month, because I start to see all of these statements about the gay community is X, or the LGBTQ community is X, and Mm. I'm just like, what community? There is no community. There is a there are gay communities, right? But gay people are born into literally every single generation in every single religion into every single political ideology in every single region in every single country on this planet. In what meaningful way is that a community? That isn't a community. Gay is a descriptor. It it is it is just a description of a type of human being. And I have started to experience and same with trans people. 
same with body, same with any any of the letters in the acronym. And mm-hmm. I have started to feel extraordinarily frustrated with the with the assumptions about me as a gay person, even though I'm very firmly on the left. And I've but I've I've started to feel very, very frustrated with the assumptions about what a gay person is because they are gay. And the truth is gay is just a description. It's like being born with a certain eye pigment. It says nothing meaningful about their beliefs because gay people are born into every single kind of situation imaginable on this planet, right? We have 8 billion people on this planet. And that that to me is it's actually dehumanizing. It is dehumanizing to say that the gay community is a community and a community by default means that you sign on to certain beliefs, certain attitudes and certain views of the world. That to me is dehumanizing. That to me is limiting what it means to be gay. I thought that the whole point of the gay movement was to avoid that limiting aspect, you know, that to, to avoid that limiting impulse so that I can be as queer as I want to be but I can also be whoever I want to be, right? And so to me, the fact that we have, I totally disagree with them, but the fact that we have gay conservatives is like a sign of progress. <laughs> like, that's, that's a good thing. It, it means that gay rights is doing its job so that gay people can be more than whatever they were defined as. And so, mm-hmm. and so this pigeonholing, this, this limit, it, it's like Peter Thiel being told, and trust me, I think Peter Thiel is a fucking ghoul. I think he's a monster and is like a blight on the human race. But people saying he is no longer gay because he, I don't know, supported Trump or whatever it was, uh, or is a conservative, saying Peter Thiel is, is no longer gay and there was like articles and all these gay magazines about this he's no longer gay because he is a conservative that to me is so backwards mm-hmm. and so rant over but i really relate to what you just said it it and drives me crazy what, it it happens to to me as, as well i mean i um you know, I, I've been in an exclusive relationship with a man who is now my husband for nearly 20 years. Before that, I dated both men and women. A big, if I'm going to be problematized, I can be problematized on either. Um, in fact, if I identify as bisexual, then I can be accused of appropriating an identity which relates to an experience I don't have because I'm in a heterosexual relationship and have been for so long. If I don't identify as bisexual, then I'm contributing to the erasure of bisexual people. So that if as soon as somebody is willing to problematize me, so I, I tend to refer to myself if people ask as mostly heterosexual and that... Um, yeah, that that's the the best I can do. But either way, whichever way it goes, I'm going to be problematized. So let's get into the the meat of your criticism of what we call critical theory. And I want to back up and contextualize this some because I know that the moment you said the word critical theory in a negative sense earlier in this conversation, about half of my listeners 
their signals went off, their alarms went off because it has been so politicized by the far right. Right. And so, you know, we have all of these bills banning, uh, yep. banning critical race theory and, and Christopher Rufo doing all his bullshit. And yeah, you shouldn't be, ba- be banning critical race theory. We've, we, absolutely. I put up an essay um, about why it is wrong to try to ban critical race theory. So I want to clarify that because you're really approaching this from, it sounds like, a liberal perspective. And your criticisms of critical theory are from a liberal perspective. I also yeah. Let's l- yes, look at critical theory though, because quite I, I I anticipate what some of your listeners are going to do. They're going to um, misunderstand and think that when we're talking about critical theory, we're talking about that with a capital C and T, and we're talking about the theories of the Frankfurt School. Now I am talking much more broadly of critical theories, and I'm using the word critical, and so I'm going to keep. Um, uh, citing my own work but if if you look on um counterweight why do we call it critical social justice you will find the definitions of the word critical in this particular sense it's a particular theoretical sense so where we have critical thinking which is when we try to make sure that we are as li- as limited by our biases as little limited as possible when we try and make sure there are evidence for claims that we make when we question our own assumptions we try to falsify things this is critical thinking trying to get less wrong critical theory on the other hand it begins with an assumption that there are power imbalances and that they are influencing everything at all times so this begins with well people have been criticizing things forever but Marx when he wrote uh, in a letter to Engels wrote um, criticized all the things that exist and um, then we got into the what they call the post-Marxists or the neo-Marxists. Um, they sometimes called themselves cultural Marxists, but that term is useless now because it's been adopted by um, people for all kinds of wrong reasons. But they moved Marxist ideas away from economics, which I think was a mistake, and into society and culture. This was then bastardized by the new left in America, which Herbert Marcuse um, was not very happy about and then there was added to it these postmodern ideas of knowledge power and language so power runs through everything these invisible systems of power and the people in power get to decide what is and isn't knowledge they then legitimize certain ways of talking about things discourses we all then speak into these discourses from wherever we are and we perpetuate these unjust power systems which are called things like white supremacy, um, patriarchy, cis-normativity, heteronormativity, ableism, fat phobia, imperialism and they're everywhere and at all times. Now liberals would disagree with about two-thirds of this. So the word liberal means freedom. So the whole concept of liberal is that we are always fighting some kind of illiberalism. There is always unjust power structures. But the critical theories that I am talking about see very simplistic and uniform ones, and they don't allow for much complexity or nuance. Whereas a liberal would say, you know, here you and I are having a conversation and um, the power balance would 
apparently be with you because you are male and I am a woman. So if we look at this idea that in a patriarchal system, there's always this power imbalance going on, you will be unable to prevent yourself from thinking that I probably don't know what I'm talking about as well as a man would. And, um, you know, you'll probably have this impulse to interrupt me and speak over me because you have been socialised to believe that as a man, you know better. But do you think like that? I'd be very surprised if you did. I don't think like that. (laughs) However, someone could hear my gay dick joke and think that that was a power imbalance. Like I could see, like there are so many things like it's basically an interpretive lens that's put onto all interactions and there's some helpful stuff in there. Like I think that there, I personally think that intersectionality as it was originally conceived of by Kimberly Crenshaw is an incredibly helpful tool when taken in moderation, right? <laughs> like it, like the dose makes the poison to it taken in moderation. But then there are extreme forms of this where it's like an interpretive tool that you can lay over all social interactions that you have. And it makes you paranoid and it makes people paranoid. And what, you know, just listening to you talk, what it makes me think of honestly is spiritual warfare in the evangelical world. I was raised charismatic evangelical and this sense of there constantly being this invisible spiritual war that you're constantly having to resist and you're constantly having to fight. And so you're constantly praying against these demonic forces and like this literal like network of of evil. It feels what you're describing feels very, very similar to that. Yeah, we we actually have an evangelical Christian who uh, will advise us on things because he is looking into um, the the very same thing and um, that there's quite serious inroads of these ideas into evangelical Christianity at the moment because they do map on so well to this whole sort of concept of original sin and the, the constant striving for redemption, which you can never quite reach. And all of these, these ideas of um, a, a kind of simplicity where you, um, you, you, the world is comprehensible. So, um, yeah, that there is. I, I think that we're going to see this more and more. And particularly, I mean, over here in the UK, there's there's very few people who say that religion is, um, you, you know, it, it, we get weird statistics like 61 percent of people are Christian, but only 30 percent believe in God or something. Um, but, um, yeah, so um, as we get more and more secular, we're going to see other frameworks arising that fulfill the same social and psychological needs that religion does and I think the critical social justice movement which is a simplification and a sort of concretization of all of these different strands of theory into a very simple framework any of your readers who want to know what that framework is have a look at um, the, the beginning of is everyone really equal by Oslem Sensoy and Robin DiAngelo um, what is critical social justice and you can see this very simplistic framework and it's a relief frankly if you can read society through all of this then you know what you've got to do you know how you can you know what you know how things work there there isn't the need to consider all of the complexities of things so obviously there is a problem 
especially in online space. I see it most most pronounced in online spaces of um I hate using this word, but cancel culture. You know, I, I log on to Twitter and it's legit like that scene of the insane asylum at the movie Amadeus it's like walking into a a Victorian insane asylum is what it feels like Mm. I think that the approach that I have taken to a lot of the madness that I see a lot of the censoriousness a lot of the trigger happy over-the-top assumption making that I see Across the board, I don't just see this on the left. I see it on the right. I mean, QAnon exists. There's crazy conspiracy theorizing. The the right loves to cancel just as much as the left. And mm. I do you know Matt McManus at all and Ben Burgess? I love Ben Burgess. He's, he's okay, Ben so, Burgess has been on the show. Yeah. So the the rise of postmodern conservatism. Um, Matt McManus is um, that that shows the mirror how it how it's it's working the same way on the right that it is on the left but in oh, different interesting. patterns. Interesting. Yeah. So so it sounds like you take a much more ideological approach to to why there is this dysfunction. Mm-hmm. I have tended towards a more technological explanation. I have tended to focus much more on the nature of the algorithms, on the business models of places like Twitter and YouTube. And I think the work of people like Jaron Lanier and Tristan Harris, who who really lay out the ways in which these algorithms warp our minds and feed on our insecurities and feed on our outrage. I have tended to see that as the primary explanation for the dysfunction. It sounds like you might include that in your analysis, but that it isn't the the real explanation. It sounds like you take a much more ideological explanation. This is because of ideas. If that is the case, why am I wrong? Why does the ideology of applied postmodernism, which is, I think, what you call it in the book, why is that a greater influence on online dysfunction than the business models of places like Twitter and Facebook? Okay, so um, first of all, you're 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 not um, right. I um, I look at the ideology. I look at the development of theories because I here's here's my secret confession. I love postmodernism and theoretical stuff. I find it also interesting. It's horrible um, when it's put into social engineering, but it, as a thought experiment, I, 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 you know, I've studied this for 12 years. So in cynical theories, and this is something we're going to do if we, um, because you raised a good point there, um, if we, if I ever did a second edition or, or something, is we're going to have a chapter of why we're not saying this is the sole cause of the problem. So we brought in what we thought of ourselves as doing was we saw that Lukianoff and Haidt had looked psychologically at the phenomena that we're currently seeing. And Manning and Campbell in um, The Rise of Victimhood cover uh, uh, had looked at it sociologically. I thought the theoretical 
aspect is missing that and so that is complementary and you'll see in chapter nine I try and show how these three work together there are more elements than I I know of people keep raising with me the issue of um, how technology um, works and how social media works and I've I've bought three books um, to try and get some kind of um, grasp on this, but I am so bored by technology and um, the algorithms of social media <laughs> that my brain won't take it in. So I am very, very willing to accept that there is something. I used to say, no, it isn't the medium at all. It's the ideas and the medium is just a tool by which they are spread. I now think that that was probably wrong and that there is something in the medium of social media that itself encourages human psychology to behave very badly and in tribalistic ways. So Jonathan Haidt has convinced me of that. And then um, another element of this, which is often missed, that I have found very um, interesting is, is the role of capitalism. So um, I, I've just been reading um, Woke Inc. by Vivek Ramaswamy. And he is very, well, I, I said I thought he's, he's very pro-capitalism, so I don't agree with all of his solutions. And he said, and he, he laughed at, at me in a friendly way and said, oh, yeah, all the lefties say I'm too pro-capitalist. All the conservatives say I'm not capitalist enough. But he does say in his book, I love capitalism. So, you know, um, anyway. <laughs> right. But, it, it does fill in a lot of the picture that I wasn't seeing. I had assumed that the reason this was growing was generally consumer-driven, that culture was changing and capitalism was, was filling the need that was being produced by consumers who wanted what is, um, you know, colloquially referred to as woke content. But having read um, Ramaswamy's book, I don't think that that's, I think that was too simplistic. I think there was more manoeuvring in sort of corporate spheres among very rich and influential people than is is currently realised. So we have this unholy combination of critical social justice activists who really don't like capitalism and capitalists who don't really like critical social justice. But the industry of critical social justice is using capitalism to work and capitalism is using social justice in order to uh, it's an, I, I think this has happened symbiotically. Some people think that it, you know, it's some kind of um, planned conspiracy. I, I don't think so. I think it's a symbiotic relationship that has grown up between capitalism and some capitalists will correct me and say what you're talking about is corporatism. And I am really, that's what I'm talking ab about. And these ideas that have caused them to have this much influence in society. Because when you look at the number of people, I even though I'm English and I shouldn't have done, I did the tribes test to see where I fall politically by American standards. And there's only 12% of Americans who are considered progressive activists. And apparently I fit in that category. So that means there's less than 12% of people, um, even in America, which is, you know, woke central, who um, hold on, hold these ideas strongly. So why are they such a dominant discourse in society that I am ironically trying to deconstruct in order to stop the discourses of power from permeating all of society? And uh... <laughs> no, and, and just listening to you talk about that, especially the, the symbiotic relationship, 
that you described, Robin DiAngelo, I, I read an article about this, about like, and, and I don't, I'm, I think Ezra Klein said that he sees Robin DiAngelo as like 60% helpful, 40% unhelpful or something like that. And that's kind of how I, that's kind of how I see her. I, there, I read her book, White Fragility. There was actually a few things in there that I found really helpful. And then there was other stuff that I thought was kind of nuts. I read an article about her, how she makes how many thousands of dollars per corporate training, per like corporate uh, race training. I mean, it, it, it really is like this marriage of, you know, sensitivity trainings and with, with high level corporate power in a way that doesn't actually, in my mind, solve any systemic issues. I mean, like nice white ladies introspecting and agonizing over their racism doesn't actually fix redlining. It doesn't actually fix any of the deep racial inequalities in America, right? It doesn't actually do anything to to deal with the real material inequality that our country is facing. And that is what annoys me so much. It's like, it's just a bandaid. It's just aesthetics. It is just performative aesthetics. Yeah. What you're, you're describing here is, is, um, and you've read it in the book that the divide between the materialists and the idealists Yes. And this is found um, everywhere. So in post-colonial theory, we get the materialists and we get the postmodernists. In critical race theory, we get the materialists and the postmodernists. D'Angelo derives almost entirely from the postmodernists. Now, she will cite occasionally um, some of the Marxists, which is where the materialists come from, but she is very almost entirely Foucauldian, and she draws in- intensively on the postmodern side of the critical race theory that was legal theory of the last century. Um, and so she is unfalsifiable. If you look at what she's saying, she closes down all avenues. So white fragility happens if you disagree, if you stay quiet or if you go away. So the only way not to be fragile is to stay exactly where you are and agree with Robin D'Angelo. Similarly, if you look at the way she evaluates people in her training sessions, if they disagree with her, then this is, um, you know, white selfish resistance. If they agree with her, then they're, they're trying to be nice racists and show how not racist they are. If they smile and nod, they're being passive aggressive. So there isn't actually a way for anybody to engage with the ideas of D'Angelo. She will raise... A, a good point, as you say, and then she will just suddenly veer off insanely with it, drawing all kinds of conclusions that don't actually come from the, the premise that she's raised in the, the first place. I'm slowly working my way through doing video breakdowns of, um, of nice racism, which I think is a particular problem. And she takes square aim at individualism. That's her newest she, book. Is that is that yeah. the book she came out with this year? Okay. Yeah. And um, she warns that it can lead to universalism and that, yeah, well, yes, yes, this is what we want. We liberals, we do want that. So I, I think I think it's important to assume that even the people who are making, you know, ridiculous amounts of money are actually sincere in their beliefs and trying to make the world a better place. It's no good, you know, nef- mind reading nefarious motivations. But um, 
I look at the ideas and if you look at the ideas of D'Angelo as I have I don't see like you I don't see a way for them to be usable for addressing issues of racial inequality so one of the things I'm apparently not allowed to say when it comes down to D'Angelo is that actually it's much more about class but if you look at the empirical evidence um, in America you will see that one of the richest groups is recent African immigrants and one of the poorest groups is African American descendants of slaves. Now why is this? Part of this is because the recent African immigrants are the rich people who have had private education in, in Africa so that's why but a large part of it is that the thing that's most likely to make you successful is having successful parents. There have only been two generations of African Americans who have been allowed to be successful. You know they're trying to this is where we get when we get black conservatives like Shelby Steele um who is who is sort of making it an individual thing you know the individual black American needs to pull themselves up and um, fight their way out of it that that takes no notice of social issues and then you get the um the people who look entirely at social issues and they don't take any account of the individual either and they then they're blaming everything on some um nebulous thing like anti-blackness which doesn't actually get at the problem which is ironically an intersection of class race with history uh location geography you know there's there's things that can be done if we look at this properly and critical social justice is getting in the way of looking at it properly i recently read a fantastic article by martha nussbaum uh, this is from the Ooh. 90s. I love Mar- Judith Butler. About <laughs> Judith Butler. You know exactly what I'm about to talk I about. I know the one. <laughs> so so I love Martha Nussbaum. She, she yep. wrote a book years ago called From Disgust to Humanity, which was a huge influence on me about, about uh, homosexuality. So I adore her. But she wrote this article, and I just want to read this one paragraph that I think exemplifies what you're saying perfectly, where she's talking about feminism and this turn that she notices in a, in the United States. And this is during the 90s. In the United States, however, things have been changing. One observes a new disquieting trend. It is not only that feminist theory pays relatively little attention to the struggles of women outside the United States. This was always a dispiriting feature, even of much of the best work of the earlier period. Something more insidious than provincialism has come, to dom- has come to prominence in the American Academy. It is the virtually complete turning from the material side of life toward a type of verbal and symbolic politics that makes only the flimsiest of connections with the real situation of real women. I love that because I think that that's that's a perfect articulation of what you're talking about. It's this it's this turning inward. It's like this turning towards a contemplative life away from the real power, from the real material conditions that are plaguing people. You know, I in a lot of ways, I see this stuff as like freudian psychoanalysis it it's like there are nuggets of good in there and then there's a whole lot of bullshit and i feel that way about a lot of the original postmodernism stuff as well like there's some really really good stuff in there like michel foucault has amazing insights and and incredible what's that 
the panopticon the, his, yes, the, the take on that is pretty good yes mm. the panopticon like like so much of what he wrote is so good and then there is some lunacy and i i kind of see critical theory as just any other school of thought in that there's there's going to be some good and then there's going to be some bullshit and mm. so in some ways i i like to think of myself as like woke light <laughs> like there there's some things that i find really helpful like i mentioned intersectionality uh earlier in the show what i yes go would on say um so um again i i when i i wrote an essay um what social justice gets right and yeah what I think that there is that nugget of truth. So as Crenshaw pointed out, there were particular stereotypes about black women that didn't apply to white women and that didn't apply to black men. So given that fact, um, these stereotypes um, could affect employment because they suggested that um, black women were sexually promiscuous and aggressive, which could cause trouble in the workplace. Now, that wasn't said about white women Mm -hmm. and it wasn't said about black men so you know Crenshaw highlighting yes these intersections can cause problems is a valuable nugget but in that same essay well actually I think it was one two years later mapping the margins she sows the seeds for everything going completely wrong because she first of all throws out universal liberalism which she refers to as mainstream liberalism but if you look at how she describes it you'll see it's it's universal liberalism. And she defines intersectionality as contemporary politics mixed with postmodern theory. This means it's going to go wrong. It's going to get crazier and uh, <laughs> and not be based on evidence and move away from the material. Now, we have to be somewhat careful when we're talking about the, um, the material, because this can then suggest that, you know, things that, that we don't accept, um, people's experiences or their sense of who they are. And no, actually, we can do all of that. We can accept people for who they say they are and for what they think and feel, but we can separate this from material reality. So you mentioned Martha Nussbaum raising this concern, and she was doing it at about the same time, around 1989, 1990, this is when the second wave that we called applied postmodernism arose and it arose with Crenshaw with Judith Butler um, with the, the well, post-colonial theory had been going for a while but there was this sudden sort of influx of we need to keep some of these postmodern ideas if you see Bell Hooks postmodern blackness uh, but we need to make them objectively true and then there was also this pushback from various people Martha Nussbaum is one of the ones who was um, worrying about this turn for materialism. Also, a wonderful um, post-colonial scholar, Mira Nanda, um, she is uh, my favourite of, of all. She um, writes about Indian studies. I think it's called Peasant Studies, the, the journal that she writes in mostly. And she looks at how postmodern approaches to post-colonialism um, actually is um, sort of in empowering conservative forces in India and there's Linda Gordon if you look at her defense of socialist feminism when she's concerned about the postmodern approach the intersectional approach so there are these ideas going back and forth but as we've got into this century then you know 2010 then things started escalating at 2015 over the last two years it's gone nuts you you know that there isn't that opportunity that there there was for people to get up on a 
uh, stage together and have a reasoned discussion. Now, I would love, for example, I wanted to have this discussion with, um, there was a, a critical social justice um, scholar and there was a conservative psychologist and there was me. And we all had different ideas on how much individual empowerment women have. And so the conservative scholar was, was, was essentially saying, yes, women are completely, you know, personal responsibility, pull themselves up. I was saying, well, yes, women are individuals who have their own lives in their own hands, but we also, you know, we're dealing with a society. So we we have to work that in. And the critical social justice scholar was, was saying, um, no, every, everything is society and we're all sort of socialised into it. And getting those ideas together, weighing up the pros and cons with each person willing to concede when the other has made something of a good point. So, And I think that would be so important. So I like, for example, Cornell West. I love the way he will say something like, my friend and f- fellow Christian, Glenn Lowry, and then complete go on to say why he thinks he's completely wrong about absolutely everything. That's the attitude that I think we should take. Um, and he calls everyone <laughs> brother. He 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 calls everyone brother or sister. Like he, he even even his total political and ideological enemies, he'll call them brother yeah. and sister. And I love that. No, I totally agree with you about Cornell West. And you know, I what you just described that magic of having multiple viewpoints engage. There is real power and magic there. And that's why I have this podcast. You know, I'm I'm getting incredibly tired of having safe conversations. And that's why I've had a more diverse crowd on my show lately. And I do get pushback about it. But I just I you know, we're in the last five minutes here. So I, I just want to end on this note that the reason why I'm having these conversations is because I think I have a moral imperative to. I think having challenging conversations with people, I think it is the ethical thing to do. Cut. I'm reading. I, I'm just looking at your note. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I just I got a bit worried because that um, I, I, I know I, I don't think that you meant that at all. But I, I know that some of the. Um, activists will take that quote where we're moving away from the material as a trans exclusionary feminist view. And so I wanted to highlight oh. that up in case oh, wonderful. you wanted to say something that made it clear that you didn't mean that. Oh, you didn't oh mean okay. That. I, I so appreciate that. Yes. Okay. So, uh, okay. So for, for listeners who don't know what's going on, Helen just sent me a, <laughs> a very nice uh, red flag in the chat saying, I'm worried that your defense of materialism and Nussbaum could be understood, could be misunderstood as transphobic. Yeah. So the, the point here being that the turn, a, a turn from the theoretical towards uh, the material can be could be interpreted as transphobic. It, it was the bit where um, it said that the material reality of of, um, of womanhood or, or something oh, that right. that is, is sometimes a phrase which um, people can use or misunderstand to mean that um, you know that not accepting trans women as women. And I don't think Nussbaum meant that, and I don't think you do. So no, I I don't. I, at, I to... don't at all. No, I so appreciate that. This is Helen Pluckrose covering my ass. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, so. 
I actually do believe that trans women are women. Like I, I, I know that that phrase gets a lot of criticism, but I actually think that like I, I think, you know, I believe that trans identities are real and valid. And so, no, it didn't even occur to me that that I can understand how that phrase could be interpreted as as a, a turf thing. But it didn't I don't even. Want, yeah. It did not even occur to me. And, <laughs> and accused of you of, you, you know, so yes, I wanted to, to pull that out. I, I differ I from you a little that. bit in that I, I also think um, trans identity is, is valid and that we need to su- support trans people um, more because they are a particularly vulnerable minority of society. But uh, I also share some concerns with the gender critical feminists about sports and things but um that's a whole different um conversation the point is to have these conversations you know the invocation of the satanic temple reads in part uh that which cannot be destroyed by truth should never be spared its demise right and and the only way to get there is to have these conversations i have a show i have a space online for adults and a and that means that I don't conduct this show by Twitter logic, which is, you know, you, you cannot ever have anyone who diverges even slightly from your stated worldview. Anyway, we're running out of time, but uh, Helen, this has been fantastic. And uh, for people who want to learn more about you, where can they do that? Well, you can come to counterweightsupport.com where a lot of my essays are, but you can usually find me arguing with people completely futilely when I should be working on Twitter at H. Pluckrose. Yeah, you're a great follower. You're a great follow on Twitter. <laughs> I, I uh, occasionally love getting on there and, and seeing all the fights that you get into. All right. Well, this has been fantastic. And uh, thank you so much for joining me. It was great to be here. All right. And dear listeners, this is a reminder that this show is a conversation. If you agree, if you disagree with anything that I said or that Helen said, I love hearing back from my audience. You can uh, join the conversation on my Discord server. There will be a link in the show notes. This isn't the final word. This is just an ongoing conversation. I probably said something that was wrong or I probably said something that can be improved, that can be sharpened. And if so, I want to explore that with you. So please join my Discord server, and I love hearing back from you. All right, well, that is it for this show. The music is by 11D7. You can find them on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to music. This show is written, produced, and edited by me, Stephen Bradford Long, and is a production of Rock Candy Recordings. As always, hail Satan, and thanks for listening. 